All right, on that note, please turn John 20. We're uh, in some ways moving slowly through this chapter. Um, didn't want to steamroll through all of this. So um, hopefully I'm not going too slow. All right, beginning in verse uh, 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, uh, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, John recording these events and the ways in which he has recorded them for us. Father, we ask that uh, the same Spirit who guided and inspired John would illumine us, that he would help us to see that which is here, that which you want us to believe, that which you want us to do, that which you want us to trust you for. And so, Father, work in uh, this body of believers uh, according to your will, by word and spirit, according to your good pleasure, for your glory. Amen. It was a painful sort of day. It was a presbytery meeting, a called presbytery meeting. And in the course of that presbytery meeting, I was in tears. Uncontrollable tears. Because what had happened was that we had decided in that meeting up at Bon Clarkin to close Cornerstone Community Church. A very difficult day, a very difficult experience, because I was being sent essentially from that meeting to... Uh, abide over the dissemination of all of the church property. To preach a few last sermons to prepare these people for a new place, a new pastor. As uh, I was overwhelmed with emotion, I was struck by the sense of failure. And at that point, I was thinking of my own failure, of the things that I had failed to do, the ways in which pride and fear had gripped me and made me, though a pastor they loved, perhaps not the best pastor they could have had. There was a great sense of what next for them, who now had no shepherd, so to speak, and for me, who now had no flock. What next? 
what does a man with uh, such a sense of failure experience in that moment and in the days to come? I say this because that's where I believe the disciples were. They were men who were hiding in a room, overwhelmed with their fear, but also clinging to pride, which had seen some of the downfall that they experienced, probably blaming themselves for what happened to Jesus, even though it's not their fault. And so John gives us this glimpse of when Jesus first appears to his disciples for our instruction as we see what he does with them. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus provides peace and pardon through the Spirit for mission. Yeah, there's a lot there. Okay? The hinge point of this whole passage, I think, is that phrase, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And so that idea of mission, I think, is central to what's going on. But of course, it's not the only thing that's going on. First off, we see that Jesus provides peace to his troubled people for mission. You see, this was a traumatic and confusing time for the disciples. They had just gone through what should have been one of the heights of the Jewish uh, religious year, and it had all fallen to pieces with the crucifixion of their rabbi. The one that they didn't just listen to, but the one for whom they had given up everything for three years. We don't conceive of that, I think. I don't think any of you have followed anyone for three years. Maybe some of you in your previous life were, were a grateful dead groupie and followed them around the country. I don't know. Maybe there's some secrets hiding out there. But uh, we don't even conceive of that, following someone around for three years. But now it ended, and it ended tragically. So it was a confusing time for them. And then they'd had this disturbing news that had come from Mary. The body's gone. Perhaps later she came back and said, I've seen Jesus. We have the news that comes from Peter and John. The tomb is empty. John doesn't tell us this, but Luke does, that sometime between Peter leaving the tomb and what happens here in this upper room, possibly the very same upper room, Peter himself has seen Jesus. I don't know what in the world to make of all of this. We do know that it's evening, and the doors have been shut. That's really what all the Greek verb says, the doors were shut. The implication, however, is that they were also locked because of fear. They, it says, feared the Jews, the Jewish leadership And so in this moment, which should be accompanied by great joy by the message that they have heard from Mary and they've heard from Peter, uh, and Clopas as well may have made it back in time for this event from Emmaus. In the midst of all of this, fear has trumped faith. 
They are not living in the faith that is produced by the resurrection. They are living in fear of persecution. Fear that the the soldiers will now come next for them, particularly if they find out that Jesus' body is missing. Maybe they will round them up thinking that they have stolen the body and interrogate them. We're not sure. But I'm reminded of an interview I saw with musician John Mayer recently where he mentions that he, everything he does is driven by anxiety or fear and that his thought was that most everybody was driven by fear. And there's a lot of truth to what he says. People are largely driven by fear as well as by pride. And what I want us to remember is that fearful and troubled people do not engage in mission. They're hiding. They're looking for a refuge. They're not being an army, so to speak. Okay, They are too caught up in protecting themselves to think about what they need to tell people at this point. What we also should consider is that churches and individuals who are marked by conflict are typically distracted from mission. That was part of my experience at Cornerstone. It seemed like every time I wanted to begin to start to think long-term, to begin to strategize, conflict would inevitably erupt. And I felt like I spent so much time dealing with conflict that I couldn't do proactive ministry. And that's one of the things I think that really stalled the church in many ways. After the church had closed, one of the ladies who at one point was an enemy of mine, who thought I was killing the church years and years earlier, came to me and said she was now an ally, a friend. She said... Why didn't we listen to you? I have been telling them all along the need to engage in this process of evangelism, and it just didn't happen. And part of that was conflict, as well as fear. But into this situation, Jesus appears. Now, it's really interesting that, that John doesn't give us a whole lot of detail. The, the, the presence of Jesus here is, is sort of mysterious. He shows up. We're not sure exactly what that means because John has left out details. But twice he says to them, peace be with you. He's emphasizing this precisely because they are troubled of heart because they are fearful, because they are anxious, because they are overwhelmed. He needs to speak peace to them. And so, in a sense, he is fulfilling this Old Testament promise. I read this, uh, right now I'm in Psalms in my own reading. And providentially, there I am in Psalm 85 this week, verse 8. Let me hear what the Lord, uh, what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace. Peace to his people, to his saints. 
And so Jesus is fulfilling this Old Testament passage because He who is the Lord is in their midst speaking peace to His saints, to His people. And when God sees His people being troubled, He continues to speak peace to His people because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when he finds his troubled people, he will speak peace to them. He also fulfills the promise he had made specifically to his disciples in the upper room discourse. My peace I leave you. And so here he is bestowing peace upon his people. Now, they aren't sure it's Jesus. I'm reminded, I talked earlier about the death of Gandalf and how uh, troubling that was, or the perceived death of Gandalf at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. And we see later that they experienced Gandalf, but he's changed from Gandalf the Gray to now he's Gandalf the White. And so he's like Gandalf. I mean, he's still Gandalf, but he doesn't necessarily look exactly like the Gandalf they knew. Something has, done to tr- has happened to transform Gandalf. In a similar fashion, there is something that has happened to Jesus. He is Jesus, but he doesn't necessarily look exactly like the Jesus they knew in his state of humiliation. And so it says that Jesus showed them his hands, he showed them his side. We were to think of perhaps the Michael Card song. Known by the scars. That's what it was that identified Jesus to them. That, that, those are the things that remind us, that teach us, instruct us that Jesus really did die. These were, again, the proof of death. They are on his body. Simon is not the one. Simon of Cyrene is not the one who died upon the cross, but it was Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph and Mary. That Jesus had died. And so, this peace that he speaks to them has been purchased with his blood. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, it says in Romans 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have this peace that Paul talks about there because of what he says in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He doesn't just bring peace, he is the peace that comes who has made us both one Jew and Gentile, one new humanity, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of of hostility. And so this shalom, this wholeness, this peace that Jesus is speaking of is a peace with God himself, but it's also intended to be a peace with one another. It has both the vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension. It comes because he brought it and now he speaks it. He's not an apparition, but the crucified one who is our peace. 
And so he provides this blessing of the gospel in part, not in whole, but at least in part, to free us from our fears and our anxieties for the purpose of mission. And so we see that their response to seeing Jesus and realizing it's Jesus, that Jesus is alive, is that they were glad or they rejoiced. Fulfilling what He said to them in John 16. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. So it makes me wonder, when we're disturbed, what is it that we ought to do? Perhaps we need to remember the resurrection that we might rejoice. That the affliction we see is not the final word, but the resurrection is the final word. Restoration is the final word. Salvation is the final word. And we need to drink of that. We need to, we need to hear of it from God so that we're not overwhelmed by our fears, but we actually experience the peace Jesus has purchased. And so Jesus kept these promises of peace so that troubled people like us can move forward in mission. Secondly, let us see that Jesus provides the Spirit to send us out to proclaim peace. You see, Jesus is not just there for a happy reunion. Jesus is there, in a sense, to commission them to go forth and make His peace known. Because right after the second assurance of peace, He says, as I said, this is sort of the hinge of the whole text, as the Father has sent Me, even so I am sending you. Now the audience here is unclear. Okay? It just says the disciples. We don't know if that refers to the 11. Actually, it would have been the 10, because we'll know from next week, Thomas isn't there. So does this, does this meaning it's capital D, disciples, who are going to become capital A, apostles, or is this a group of disciples that goes far beyond the 12? Okay? Meaning, Mary could have been there. Well, the Marys <laughs> could have been there. Uh, Klopas could have been there, and other Christians, other disciples of Jesus could have been there. And so if it's the latter, then this is really given to not just the officers of the church, the apostles, but it's given to the church. Okay. And so this is functioning in many ways uh, like Matthew 28. All right. So the point seems to be that they were not just to receive Christ's peace, but they were also to offer Christ's peace to those who are troubled. There's a struggle that goes on in, in churches sometimes. And that's because um, it's one of the church growth things is felt needs. Okay. And many of us who are good Reformed people here, they go, don't preach that stuff. Okay? But I don't do that. Jesus addressed their felt need. 
There's nothing wrong with recognizing where people are, what they feel, and how the gospel addresses both that and the more profound need that lies beneath it. Jesus didn't show up and say, suck it up. I don't care if you're afraid. you got a job to do. Go out and do it now. Jesus was dealing mercifully with these people. These men and women needed to hear peace because they were troubled, and being troubled, they were no of no good to Him. And so He comforts. He addresses that felt need as well as the profound need they have and then sends them out. Okay? But we see here that the reception of peace is necessary for the mission, but it's also insufficient for the mission. Okay, They need to receive the peace that He offers, but that's not enough. There's something else that Jesus must give them in order for them to move out into the world that scares the living daylights out of them and make Jesus known. Okay? I heard this phrase this week when we were... Uh, actually, I heard it last week when I was meeting with this church planter, and he brought up this distinction between... Um, a reformed refuge and a reformed witness. And the reformed refuge is, a, is the kind of church where people go because they're reformed and they don't want to be in a non-reformed church and they're hunkering down. Okay, It's safe here. Okay. The idea of reformed witness is, yeah, we've gathered together, we believe these things, but we're here not just for ourselves, but we're here for the world. We're here to be a witness to those who are around us. And churches, reformed churches, tend to struggle with being a refuge instead of being a witness. And Jesus wants them to be a witness. And so He, again, provides that which they need in order to do this. He says, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is confusing, and this passage is controversial. Okay? Precisely because we have Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. Okay? This is, this is a sense is functioning as John's Pentecost, but... In a sense. I'm not going to give you the many ways in which this text has been interpreted. I'm going to give you how I'm interpreting it. How I'm understanding it. And the first part of that is the reality of He breathed on them. That should remind us of the creation of Adam in Genesis 2. Then the Lord God formed the man from dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living creature. And so there's something here about Jesus breathing on them. And in the Old Testament, just as it is in the New Testament, the Hebrew and the Greek, the idea of, well, the word used in Hebrew, ruach, it can refer to wind, it can refer to breath, it can refer to the spirit. In the same way, in the New Testament, pneuma can refer to breath. Okay, We talk about doctors who deal with Lungs and there's, you know, um, pneumonia. That's a disease that we're all familiar with. It's an infection in the 
lungs, breath, can't breathe. Okay, so the same sort of thing happens here, this idea of breath and spirit kind of going together in some sense. And so just as the, new, the original life came through the breath, and so here we see symbolically the new life comes through breath. So this is in a sense a prophetic, symbolic act that points to Pentecost. They were not now receiving the Spirit itself because if we compare Acts 2 with the end of John, what we find in the end of John is they didn't go out and do mission, did they? Where do we find them in chapter 21? Let's go fishing. (laughs) The boldness that was necessary for mission had not yet come upon them, which indicates to me that the Spirit had not yet come upon them. What happens in Acts 2? The Spirit comes upon them, and the, what Jesus said in Acts 1 about that He will come and, and empower you to witness happens. They immediately begin to testify about Christ and Him crucified, calling people to saving faith, and we see this great response of people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so this is, a, this is a symbolic act, a prophetic act. The Spirit will come upon you just as I have breathed upon you, and you will go and you will make known the greatness of Jesus. But let us remember that the Holy Spirit comes with many blessings that Jesus has won for us on the cross. This is, in a sense, here I go again, the fulfillment of the promise of the new covenant for the good of the church. Ezekiel 37. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. That's the dry bones, people. He was to speak to breathe under the dry bones, and they would come to life. We see it in the previous chapter in the promise of the new covenant, which includes, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And we could have added right there, and fulfill the mission I've called the church to. (laughs) Apart from the spirit, we do nothing. We are fearful and prone to go fishing, just like the disciples. While we benefit from the coming of the Spirit, we are not meant to keep those blessings to ourselves, but we are blessed in order to be a blessing. It is in fulfillment of Genesis 12, the blessing of Abraham. God was going to do all these great things for him, and then he says, and you will be a, or become a blessing to the nations. Part of what's controversial and confusing about this text, uh, this, this sentence as well, is that two different words are used for sent. The word that as I have been, as the Father sent me, which is the root verb for apostle, okay, he uses a different word, I send out you. We're not sure exactly what to make of that. 
Again, many people float a whole lot of theories about it. Some people say it means absolutely nothing. But I think it means something. Because the Spirit of God chose to use one word in one place and another word in another place. I think they means something. And part of what I think it means is that Jesus is unique. The Father has sent Him as the only begotten, as the unique Son of God, who is the only Savior, and we are the ones who go to testify about Him. We are simply His witnesses. But we are sent. And we need to sometimes remember we've been sent. And so the Spirit empowers us The Spirit moves us out of the holy huddle, out of the Reformed refuge, and into a lost world to be a Reformed witness. And so Jesus sends the Spirit necessary for us to fulfill our mission as His witnesses. Thirdly, Jesus provides pardon for us to proclaim. There's another confusing sentence here. Jesus uses some antithetical parallelism to identify our message as his witnesses. And the first part of it is the positive side, but the negative side is almost identical. If you forgive the sins of any, they, and it should be, have been forgiven them. There's a message of forgiveness that is going to be proclaimed. The verbs are, you know, the pattern is first the subjective Subjunctive, rather. If, that if clause. You know, if this happens, the idea is then this happens. Okay? So it's a different verb tense, followed by a perfect tense, the have been forgiven, something that has already been done and has abiding, um, not just happened in the past, but abiding consequences in the present. Okay? Some have used this text to, tr- to sort of justify the private confessional. The priest, okay, Rome uses it for this purpose. And that doesn't seem to be it because the any is really a whose and that's really a plural. Okay? This doesn't seem to be about public pardon of sin when you come to a confessional. This seems to be more of the public proclamation of the gospel, the public proclamation of pardon, of forgiveness. Those who believe are among those for whom Jesus died, and so their sins have been forgiven. And those who don't believe, their sins are retained. They remain in their sins. Forgiveness has been withheld. And so there's this great warning with regard to unbelief that is present here. But we see in places like Ephesians 1 that this this forgiveness, this pardon has been purchased by Jesus. Paul says in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood. And then he has this clause that defines what that redemption is. And that is the forgiveness of our trespasses. And so His blood produces our redemption, which means we have forgiveness for our trespasses. And this, according to Paul, is according to the riches of God's grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And it's hard for me to understand how wisdom and insight result in pardon of transgressions. And it should surprise you. 
because it doesn't always seem wise to forgive people who repeatedly break the law. What if I were to say to you, like some politicians seem to want to say, amnesty for all, get rid of the prisons. What if we had no prisons? It's kind of dangerous. And so it is with sinners and churches. It's dangerous. We still sin against God and we still sin against one another. It hasn't removed that. But this again is a fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of the new covenant. The very end of Jeremiah 31, the last thing that is mentioned in the promise of the new covenant is, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And so as we see in Romans 5, which we've already mentioned, the pardon is connected with peace. It's because we have been justified, because we have been pardoned and declared righteous, that we have peace with God. They're connected with one another. We have this peace because we've been pardoned. Here's the thing. You will not proclaim pardon unless you experience pardon for yourself. You will not declare the wonders of forgiveness unless you have experienced the wonders of forgiveness. Unless you're a mercenary, like an actor in a television commercial who has never used a product but you know, says how great it is anyway. Okay? The best endorsement is from someone who has actually experienced it. The person in a commercial who says, I use it, I love it. And so a Christian or an evangelist should be one who says, I've experienced it, I love him, and I'm inviting you to experience it, that you may love him. Luther reminds us with his formula, formula, simul justus et peccator, at the same time just and sinner. He reminds us of this reality that I think uh, Paul gets at in Romans 5, is that we still have peace with God, even though we continue to sin, precisely because we are justified in Christ, and we have His perfect righteousness, and our ongoing sin does not destroy that. And so, our ongoing sin, even though it does not destroy justification, can affect our communion or fellowship with God. Think of it this way. What happens when you fight with a friend? And they call. See, in the old days, we didn't know who called. You just picked up the phone. It was, a, it was a great mystery. I wonder who it could be. You know? uh, I, I, I experienced this mystery when anyone calls our house because my eyes can't see the caller ID. Okay? And so you know, Amy's like, well, who is it? I'm like, I don't know who it is. But if you call me on the cell phone and I'm arguing with you, when I see your name, what do you think I'm going to do? I don't want to talk to him. I don't have to click. Just go voicemail. Pick it up. 
Okay? Or, as I experienced, people who left the church in an ugly fashion and I see them in Walmart. I want to go like this, you know. Nope, they didn't see me. Let's go down this aisle. I'll hide by the toilet products for a while. That's communion. Communion, that's fellowship. Sin does interfere with our relationship with God. We're still justified, but we're not drawing close. We're hiding in the bushes. Okay? And so we still need to hear the message of forgiveness so that, so that God is basically bringing us out of the bushes. He comes and finds us, just like He found Adam and Eve, brings us out of the bushes, pardons us, so that we continue to engage in the mess, the mission and enjoy fellowship with Him. Because guess what? If you're not enjoying fellowship with Him, are you going to recommend Him to anybody? When we feel guilty, we're not engaged in evangelism. We're running from evangelism. We withdraw from God. We also withdraw from mission. Pardon. That's why I think Calvin notes the whole doctrine of godliness and the spiritual building of the church rests on this foundation. That God, having acquitted us from all sins, adopts us to be His children by free grace. If we don't grasp the acquittal, the pardon, okay, our, we don't rest on the foundation. And so there's no holiness. There's no godliness. And there's no proclamation. So it all comes back to that. And so mission really is the crux of this passage. I wish I could preach this passage and just, you know, wipe that out. Didn't, don't want to trouble you with this. But we see here also the great needs of the disciples. They're fearful. They're retreating and hiding. And most likely they feel guilty because they've abandoned Jesus. And so they need pardon. They need peace. They need power through the Spirit. And Jesus provides all of these things that they need in order to engage in their mission to proclaim Jesus as Messiah as the one who provides peace and pardon. You see, Jesus isn't asking you to make bricks without straw. He provides what we need to enable us to do these things. He is the same today just as we are the same today. We are often needy. But Jesus continues to provide the peace, the pardon, and the power that we need to fulfill this ongoing mission to a world that needs to hear. Okay, and so really what this comes back to is, are you living in your guilt and fears? Are you living in your weakness? Are these limiting you? Are you allowing them to limit you? 
and your presumed usefulness to God? Or are you relying on Him? Are you seeking this great provision that Jesus has purchased for us? And moving forward. Are you receiving Christ and all of His benefits? And are you then walking with Him? See, this fits right in with the whole gospel waltz. I'm a mess. I receive Jesus. And now I walk. And the walking here is receiving pardon, I preach pardon. Receiving peace, I preach peace in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, we struggle. For many of us, we do not have the gift of evangelism like Paul or many friends that I know. We struggle with evangelism. Part of that is because we struggle with fear. We struggle with guilt. So Father, by the Spirit, continue to bring us back to Jesus to see that He is our peace. He is our pardon. And that He pours out the Spirit. Father, help us really to increasingly receive Christ. And we already have Him. but to make use of all of those blessings that He has won for us by His obedience. So we can be set free from our guilt, from our fears, so we can rise and follow You. Oh, that's something You have to do by Your Spirit. And we ask that You would. I ask that you would make us a reformed witness. That you would shift us from refuge to witness. That many would taste the goodness of the Lord because of us. And that your glorious grace would be Praised because it's been embraced. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.